The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Good morning. We want to welcome everyone here this uh, Mother's Day morning as we gather together at West Houston Bible Church for our morning worship. A couple of announcements, or one announcement. This uh, next Saturday morning at 10 a.m., the deacons will be meeting. Before we begin our worship service this morning, let's make sure that we are prepared for worship. We'll take a few moments of silent prayer so that if necessary, you can use 1 John 1, 9, making sure that we're in fellowship with the Lord so that God the Holy Spirit can uh, work in our worship and during the time of teaching to make it profitable for our spiritual growth. Let's pray. Our Father, we're indeed grateful that we can gather together this morning to study your word and to give praise to you for all that you have done for us, especially because you have provided a perfect salvation through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, let us be mindful that you have said in your word that it is through your word that we grow and mature, that it is through your word that we have true freedom, and that your word is the basis for our spiritual life. Father, we thank you above all things for the freedom that we have in this nation, that we can worship you, and that we can study your word. And we pray that this time will honor and glorify you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll sing hymn number 175, Man of Sorrows. The thoughts expressed in the hymn that we just sang, Man of Sorrows, are laid out, are based on Isaiah chapter 53. So we'll read Isaiah 53 as our scripture reading this morning, because that fits not only with the context of what we have been singing, but also with the underlying doctrines for the communion service. Isaiah chapter 53, I'll read all 12 verses. Isaiah chapter 53 all 12 verses. Now, I want everybody to make sure you remember everything in this chapter because it forms a background for the message later on, okay? Isaiah 53. Who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of dry ground. He has no form or comeliness, and when we see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who will declare his generation? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was stricken. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich at his death, because he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He has put him to grief. When you make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore I will divide him a portion with the great, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul unto death. And he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many, and he made intercession for the transgressors. It's interesting to note how many times as you read through the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, it talks about the fact that he bore the sin of many, that the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all, and that our judgment was placed upon him, that he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement for our peace was upon him. Again and again throughout the 53rd chapter of Isaiah, we see this emphasis on the substitutionary atonement of Jesus Christ for us, that what he did on the cross was not simply to demonstrate his love for man, It wasn't uh, as an example of God's moral government of the human race, but it was a substitutionary atonement. It was a penalty that was paid. That's why theologians refer to it as a penal substitution, that it wasn't just a simple death. It was a penalty in substitute for the sins of the world. The night before the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross, He took the Passover meal that the Jews had been celebrating since 1446 B.C. For over 1460 years, the Jews had practiced this ritual on an annual basis. It looked back to what had happened, what had transpired in April of 1446 when God had miraculously delivered the Jews from slavery in Egypt. For over 300 years, they had been enslaved in Egypt. And that was a picture that God would use throughout history of our sin and the enslavement of every human being to sin. Scripture says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And in Romans chapter 6, we're told that we are born in sin and that we are born as slaves to unrighteousness. This is the condition of every single human being since Adam chose to sin in the Garden of Eden. So this slavery to Egypt was a picture that God would use of our to to depict our slavery to sin. As God delivered or redeemed the Jews from that slavery, as he bought them, purchased them from that enslaved condition, that too is used by the Lord to picture how Jesus Christ would purchase us from the slave market of sin. The final 
plague that God brought upon the Egyptians was the plague of the death of the firstborn. And God promised that every household in, e- in every household in Egypt, the firstborn would die when the angel of death passed over Egypt. But those who took the blood of a lamb, a lamb that was without spot or blemish, and applied that blood to the doorpost, that sacrificial blood to the doorpost and in the, in the top of the door, that when the angel came, of death came, the angel of death would pass over that house and the firstborn would not die. That was a picture of the fact that those for whom Jesus died, those who believe in him, trust in his shed blood, his work on the cross, that those who believed and trusted in him would be redeemed and purchased and live. They would have life rather than death. So the penalty for sin is death. But Jesus Christ provided the payment for that sin on the cross so that by faith alone in Christ alone we might have eternal life. The scriptures are very clear that the only way to have this salvation is simply to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his unique Son that whosoever believes in him should have everlasting life. Well, when the Lord came to celebrate that Passover meal with his disciples, he invested the two of the elements in the Passover meal with new meaning. The core element of the Passover meal, of course, was the lamb. And the lamb was a picture of Jesus Christ. This is why John the Baptist came announced when he saw Jesus, when Jesus came down to the Jordan, he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that lamb, that it was killed, sacrificed, roasted for the Passover meal was a picture of Jesus Christ. Along with the eating of the lamb, there was the eating of unleavened bread. The leaven was always a picture of sin in the Bible. And so the lack of leaven in the bread was to depict the perfect humanity of the Lord Jesus Christ, that he was sinless, that he was impeccable, uh, theologians say. Because he was impeccable, he was qualified to go to the cross and die as our substitute. So the first element is the bread, unleavened, to depict the person of the Lord Jesus Christ is qualified to pay the penalty for our sin. The second element in the Lord's table taken from the Passover meal, it was actually taken from the third cup. There there were four cups that were traditionally taken during the course of the meal. And the third cup was called the cup of redemption. And so Jesus, when he came to that, said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given as a substitute for you. And what he was saying would have resonated with any Jewish audience because they knew the prophecies from the Old Testament that the Old Covenant would be superseded by a New Covenant according to Jeremiah chapter 31. And so what Jesus was claiming was profound. He was claiming that in his death, because blood represents a penal death, it wasn't that it was the physical blood that was efficacious, it was that it stood for a penal substitution. You have that phraseology all the way through Scripture, going back to Genesis chapter 9, that if if man uh, sheds man's blood, then man shall also shed the blood of the person who committed the murder. And, of course, that's not restricted to simply a 
murder where there is bloodshed. It's related to any kind of murder. So the shedding of blood was always an idiom for a, a death. And the death that was efficacious on the cross for the penalty for sin related to spiritual death and therefore was efficacious for all other kinds of death that were the consequence of that spiritual death. So between 12 noon and 3 p.m. on that day that Jesus Christ hung on the cross when he was crucified and the sky became dark, it was at that same time that the the high priest and the priests in the uh, temple in Jerusalem were slaughtering the Passover lambs. And as those Passover lambs were being slaughtered in fulfillment of that prophetic type, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, was paying the penalty for our sins on the cross and establishing the foundation for the new covenant, which is why he is saying this is the new covenant of my blood which is given for you. So at that time in history when Jesus established the the Lord's table, it not only looked back to Israel and the deliverance there, but it also looked forward to what Jesus Christ was doing on the cross and there was also another element of anticipation there because at, the, at, the, uh, at that last supper, Jesus said he would not drink of the fruit of the vine until he came again in his kingdom. And so not only does the Lord's table look back to what Jesus Christ did on the cross, but it also anticipates and looks forward to the time when he will come in his kingdom and establish that at the second coming. In the Corinthian church during the first century, they got involved in all manner of carnality, not the least of which was utilizing the Lord's table as an opportunity to to have a party, an orgy, and get drunk. Because in the early church, they didn't just have two elements. They would have an entire meal with the Lord's table. And at that time, the Apostle Paul warned them that they were coming to the table in an unworthy manner. They were coming with sinful motivations, and their life was characterized by sin and consistent with Psalm 66:18 that if I regard iniquity in my heart the Lord will not hear the Lord said that uh, that um, or Paul taught that they should examine themselves to make sure that they were in fellowship to make sure that they were indeed cleansed of sin ready to participate in the Lord's table so with that we will begin with a few moments of silent prayer then I'm going to ask uh, Doug Daly if he would come forward and return thanks for the bread Let's pray. Father, as we partake of the bread, we thank you for the humanity of Christ and that he lowered himself to become true humanity so that he could be the mediator between uh, man and God, the uh, man Christ Jesus. We pray that the Holy Spirit will help us to bring these things to mind related to his body and what the bread represents. In Jesus' name, amen. It is our custom to retain the bread until all have been served. Having broken the bread, the Lord passed it out to his disciples, and he said, This is my body, which is given as a substitute for you. Take and eat.
I'm going to ask Doug Karn if he would please return thanks for the cup. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the opportunity that you've given us to gather together to celebrate the Lord's table. Father, as we take the cup, which represents the spirit substitutional atonement of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross, we pray that you'll bless the cup to his honor and glory. We pray all these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. It's our custom to retain the cup until all have been served. Our Lord then took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood. As often as you drink this, do so in remembrance of me. Let us stand together and we'll sing hymn number 185, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. We'll sing the third verse softly and crescendo on the fourth. Let's stand. Scripture teaches that it is the responsibility of every believer priest to support the local church. Giving is not based on some sort of legalistic operation where we're trying to impress God, but is a response to God's grace toward us. Giving is an expression of our gratitude for all that God has done for us in providing salvation and our spiritual life. Scripture teaches, as every man purposes in his heart, so let him give, not grudgingly or of necessity, for God loves a generous, grace-oriented giver. As the men come forward to take up the collection, let's bow our heads together and pray. Father, we do thank you for all that you have provided for us, for everything that we have, our life, our health, but above all, our salvation. Father, these gifts are but a token of our appreciation for all that you have done for us. In Christ's name, amen. Let's bow our heads together as we ask the Lord's direction on our teaching of the Word today. Father, we thank you for your Word that is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Now, Father, as we study these things this morning, may our faith be strengthened and our understanding of your work in history uh, broadened. Father, we thank you for all that you have done for our own spiritual life, and we pray that we might continue to be steadfast and faithful to you and to your Word. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are in the sixth letter of the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. Today we begin in Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, this isn't talking about Pennsylvania. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These things says, He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. This is the second letter that we are going to see of the seven that has nothing negative to say about the recipient church. It is as the others addressed to the angel, the angelos of the church in Philadelphia. And as I have taught in some detail already on the identification of the angelos, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this. This must be taken in the same sense in which the word is used throughout the other 
60 uses of the word, or approximately 60 uses of the word in the book of Revelation, that it refers to a supernatural being identified as as an angel. And the function is consistent with that of the other angels in the book of Revelation, and that is that it has something to do with the outworking of the judgment of God, the decisions that uh, come from the Supreme Court of uh, of Judgment, from the Supreme Court of Heaven. So the conclusion that we have reached from extensive study is that this is a command to the angelic record keeper who is... Uh, keeping tabs on local churches as well as individual believers, recording the evaluations of these churches and the uh, outworking of the evaluation of those churches in view of future judgment which will take place at the judgment seat of Christ. There's judgment, as we saw last time, both in time and in uh, eternity future. The word Philadelphia actually occurs some six Times in the New Testament. It also occurs in Romans 12.10, 1 Thessalonians 4.9, Hebrews 13.1, 1 Peter 1.22, and 2 Peter uh, 2.7. Each of these focuses on the Christian virtue of brotherly love, but it is only here that it refers to a geographical location, a place name. Now, here is our map that gives us an indication of where each of these seven uh, cities were located. We started with Ephesus down in the lower right and moved from Ephesus to Smyrna, then further up north to Pergamum. Then we took a swing to the southwest going through Thyatira uh, and Sardis, and now we are in Philadelphia. Uh, Philadelphia is 28 miles southeast of Sardis in the uh, region known as uh, Lydia. The city was originally founded about 189 to 185 BC under the Seleucid Empire. It was founded by Eumenes II, the king of Pergamum, or possibly by his brother Attalus II. Because of their loyalty to one another, the city, the, the one brother was called, Attalus was called Philadelphus meaning the one who had brotherly love or loyalty to his brother, and it was for that that the city was named. The city had quite a tremendous history, and its history is significant to understand some of the uh, emphases in this particular evaluation. The city was located near the upper end of a very fertile plateau in the, along the Cogamus River, which was a tributary of the larger Hermes River, which would, which ran up north by Sardis. So you, it's not on the map, but there was a river. The uh, Cogamus ran from Philadelphia and merged in with the Hermes up by Sardis. This valley was uh, extremely fertile, and the region became widely known for their vineyards and their wine production. Uh, this is the Napa Valley of this part of Turkey. And that became a uh, key element in their economy. The location was such that it was along the most, uh, uh, the best path for ascending from the Hermes Valley to the higher plateau, which was an ascent up from 550 feet in elevation to 1,500 feet 
in elevation, and it became the second most important trade route in western Turkey. Now, so you think about that in terms of economics. When you're uh, seated astride uh, an Interstate 10, for example, or uh, something like uh, Interstate 95 on the uh, east coast or I-5 out on the west coast, that is your major trade route, and that's where all the truckers went in the ancient world. That was your camel drivers, and that's where they all the goods moved through that area. So it brought a tremendous amount of prosperity to each of these cities that were located along uh, these major routes. It also meant that these were areas that would be uh, popular for attack from the enemy, so they had to be well fortified, and this was an excellent uh, location for military defense and was defended against uh, various uh, enemies, various military attacks through the years uh, quite well. By the later Byzantine period, which was sometime after uh, the first century, sometime into the uh, 5th and 6th century A.D., it was the greatest trade route in this part of the world. So it was like just like I-10. You get out on I-10, you watch all those truckers that go by from uh, the East Coast going across Texas, across Houston and San Antonio and El Paso. That was what you had in Philadelphia. The goods that moved from the East came through Philadelphia and moved to the coastal ports in Smyrna as well as, as, well as Ephesus. The city initially was founded for an interesting purpose. It was founded to be sort of a missionary hub for the, uh, for the uh, communication of, an, of Greek culture. It was founded to consolidate the administration of the region and to be a hub for teaching and promoting Greek civilization throughout all of the more rural areas in this part of western Turkey. Thus, it became an apostle of Greek culture from ancient time and was known as a missionary city. Now, that's important as background because uh, the Lord Jesus Christ, in his evaluation of this city and in his commendation uh, for them, will pick up on that cultural element and apply that to the fact that he is giving them an open door uh, for evangelism, so they are. This is referred to as the missionary city of the seven cities mentioned in Revelation two and three. And so, one of the things we will come back to uh, discussion of next Sunday is developing a uh, missions strategy and the importance of missions for a local church. And of course, as a new church. Uh, just barely two years old, we are still somewhat of a mission ourselves. And it's important, I believe, for a local church to get well established before it starts taking on much of a missionary emphasis. But that should be there in terms of the mentality, the attitude, the prayers of any local church. We should have that, that worldview that thinks in terms of sending out Missionaries to take the gospel in cross-cultural settings, both here at home as well as uh, abroad. When you think about how many cultures there are in Houston, from uh, Oriental Asian cultures to uh, Hispanic cultures, uh, all of the different uh, foreign groups that are here, for example, when we used to meet over at 
at, uh, at, at White Oak Baptist, there was a group of, of Kenyan Christians, mostly uh, students from University of Houston, some of the other uh, schools here in the Houston area came to, they would have had about 200 in that congregation, and they conducted their whole service as if it was a national Kenyan church. So uh, there's great opportunity in terms of missions right here in the Houston area, communicating the gospel to foreign nationals who are here, many of them to study, and then in turn they will go uh, back to their home country. So don't think when we, when we get there, we're not going to limit our concept of missions to just sending uh, someone over to Russia or China or India or supporting an evangelist in that context. The whole ca- concept of missions derives from the mission that Jesus Christ has given to every believer, which is to take the gospel to every part, the uttermost parts of the world. So that is part of our responsibility as a local church. Well, this area where Philadelphia was located was not unlike the area where Mexico City is located in terms of its uh, geology. It was an earthquake-prone area, and the city was located on the edge of a major fault called the Catacaumeni Fault. And the Catacaumeni Fault uh, was uh, very active during this time. The word Catacaumeni comes from the Greek verb, which means to burn. And along this fault line in the ancient world, there were a number of volcanoes, just like uh, what you have down in the uh, valley where Mexico City is located. It's ringed by a number of volcanoes, or vo- what were once active volcanoes, and only uh, one or two are, are still. And this volcanic ash had contributed to the fertility of the valley, the fertility of the soil, and um, which laid a strong agricultural base in that area. In A.D. 17, during the reign of Tiberius, emperor of Rome, there was a massive earthquake, one of the greatest earthquakes that occurred in the ancient world, and it virtually wiped out Philadelphia as it did to also Sardis. So there had to be a massive rebuilding campaign, much like what took place some hundred years ago when they had the great... uh, quake in San Francisco or what's taking place now in uh, rebuilding New Orleans after uh, the Katrina disaster. So these kinds of things are not uncommon, and even government uh, involvement in providing the financial resources to rebuild these cities is not uncommon, for Tiberius poured enormous amounts of money into Sardis and Philadelphia in order to rebuild those particular areas. Down through the first century, during the time that the apostles were alive and during the time that Paul was traveling through this part of the world, there were a number of major earthquakes. We don't think about things like that as we're reading through the New Testament. Uh, We don't think about the weather. When we were in Ephesus uh, a couple of years ago, it was a 115 degrees. So, you know, when you think about the apostle Paul sending out uh, his uh, students from the uh, school that he had there in Ephesus to take the gospel throughout Asia. Think about those hot summers. I mean, this is like the Valley of the Sun in Phoenix. It is uh, extremely hot and dry, earthquake prone, just a lovely place to live. Now, since it was in a wine producing region, who do you think their local deity was? 
Of course, it was Dionysius, the god of wine, and so you had the would have the uh, bacchanalian festivals, and you would have the priestesses to Dionysius who were going up into the uh, sacred groves and getting drunk in order to uh, have a closer uh, involvement with their god. The idea was that the more wine you drank, as you got inebriated, then the spirit of the god would enter into you, and if you were very fortunate and very spiritual then the God would speak through you in ecstatic utterances, and that was the uh, counterfeit gift of tongues. And that's why in Corinth you had this problem with tongues, is because they were confusing this counterfeit glossolalia that was uh, practiced around the ancient world, and they were confusing that with the miraculous spiritual gift of giving people the ability to speak in a language that other people could understand for the communication of uh, doctrinal truth. Now, in A.D. 92, just a few years before the writing of this uh, particular evaluation report, there was a famine that occurred throughout this part of the world, throughout Turkey, and the emperor Domitian, the same emperor who exiled John to the Isle of Patmos, decreed that half the vineyards were to be cut down and no new ones planted in their place. They were to grow corn. See, they hadn't figured out how to uh, distill corn liquor yet, so they were going to grow uh, corn for eating. And this did not work very well because during this time of, of famine and the time of drought in the area, they were not able to produce enough corn to really feed the people or to export and this just exacerbated the whole situation. That's what happens when government gets involved in trying to solve crises. And just a great example of this. The government got involved to solve the famine, told them to cut down the vineyards, and it just made everything worse because as long as they were producing all the grapes and all the wine, they could sell that, export it, and produce money to buy food. But now they couldn't produce enough wine to export. They couldn't... Uh, produce enough corn to take care of their uh, needs for food, and so it just exacerbated the whole problem. Just thought I'd throw that in as a little application we get from studying history. Later on in history, in the uh, 14th century, the citizens of Philadelphia put up a fierce opposition to the invasion of the Muslim Turks before they were ultimately defeated. Now this gives us a picture of the city, the people, the culture of Philadelphia. It was deeply rooted in Greco-Roman culture, in their religious thought, their religious system, and they had this uh, fierce pride in that culture, and they had been founded to uh, export that and to promote that in the uh, city and the areas around them. In the same way, the Lord is going to encourage them to do that uh, with the gospel. So we look at our passage, and to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, right? These things says, and then we get a list of attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ, the character of the one who is writing this evaluation report. It says, these things says, he who is holy, he who is true, and there should not be a quotation mark there. That's an editorial problem in the New King James. It's a, the list continues. He who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, 
and shuts and no one opens. Now, if you're reading this in the Greek, there's something that stands out for you. It should stand out in the English as well. You have a list here of four things, and they are not joined at any point by a conjunction. This is known as a figure of speech known as ascenditon. And ascenditon simply means there are no conjunctions, no ands, no buts, no therefores. It's just a list, and it's designed for emphasis to sort of grab, grab your attention. And one of the ways that the writer uses figures of speech here is if you look at verse 8, where he says, I have set before you an open door, and no one can shut it, for, another conjunction, for you have little strength, have kept my word, and have not denied my name, is loaded with conjunctions. That's called poly. So just a little grammatical note here that it is in these stylistic devices that the writer of Scripture grabs our attention and puts uh, emphasis in different areas. So as he is speaking about the Lord, or as the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking of himself, he outlines four attributes. He who is holy. He who is the true one. He who has the key of David. And he who opens and no one shuts and shuts, and no one opens. So to what do these attributes refer, and what do they emphasize? Well, the first attribute is that he is holy. Now, holy is one of those religious words that people use a lot, but most folks, due to overuse, don't really understand what holiness is all about. They sing the doxology, holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. They don't know where it came from or what it means. And it comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 3, as Isaiah is transported in some way into the very throne of God, and he realizes how totally distinct, how totally other, how totally uh, perfect God is, and that he is a tainted sinner. And he says, woe is me, a man of unclean Lips, And then a seraphim flies out from the throne of God and touches his lips with coal, which pictures the cleansing of his lips, like confession of sin is for cleansing and forgiveness of all unrighteousness. Holiness has the basic idea of that which is set apart to the service of deity. That's the, that's the core idea. It comes from the Hebrew root kadash, and kadash refers to that which is set apart to the use of deity. It doesn't refer necessarily to that which is morally pure. See, that's usually what we think of as holiness, is that which is morally pure. There's no sin there. There's moral perfection. But the, both the noun, the male, um, excuse me, the masculine noun and the feminine noun related to kadash refer to the uh, male and female prostitutes in the practice of the fertility uh, worship of the Baalim and the Asherim in the Old Testament. And that's certainly not a moral concept. And what the emphasis was was that those prostitutes in the practice of the fertility religions were dedicated to the service of their God, and they had given their bodies over to the service of their God. So the core idea in holiness is that which is uh, totally dedicated to the service of God. From that, it gets this idea of being set apart or distinct or unique. So when Jesus refers to himself as hagias, he who is holy, it is emphasizing his uniqueness, his distinctness, that 
it is giving and ascribing to him an attribute that belongs only to God. So there is an emphasis here on his deity, that he is fully God. He is not derivative deity. He is not created divinity. He has not been uh, uh, given some sort of second-rate deity at the uh, at his baptism, but he is equal in every category to God. He is holy and distinct, set apart to God. In, con- in, in continuation and almost a, a, a further development of this idea, we have the second attribute of the Lord Jesus Christ here, that he is alethanos in the Greek, alethanos, meaning real or genuine or the true one. It is the cognate noun alethes, which emphasizes what is true as fact in contra- uh, contrast to error. It is the adjective aletheia, where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. The, he is making a claim here to being the true one. And what we see in the context is that there is an emphasis on that which is real as opposed to that which is not real, that which is genuine as opposed to that which is false. The emphasis here is that Jesus is the real or genuine Messiah. The term Messiah comes from the Hebrew word root Mashiach, which means the anointed one. And throughout the Old Testament there was the anticipation of the coming Savior who was called the Anointed One, the Mashiach. When you translate Mashiach into Greek, it becomes Christos. Christ is not Jesus' last name. It is his title that he is Jesus, the Messiah, Yeshua HaMashiach. He is the one that was uh, promised and prophesied. He is the Anointed One from the ancient times of the Old Testament. That Jesus Christ is the Jesus is the one who claims to be the real or genuine Messiah. The word also has another emphasis that goes back to the Old Testament concept. We've studied the whole concept of truth in the Scripture, and the root word for truth in the Old Testament comes from the verb amen, which has to do with ultimately with that which is steadfast or or faithful. It refers to, in one place, to the foundation stone under the pillars of the temple. So it has to do with that which is unshakable, that which is completely stable, that which is always dependable. And so there is a nuance of this word, alethanos, which is not only emphasizing that Jesus is the true Messiah, the genuine Messiah as opposed to the false Messiah, but because he is the true Messiah, he is always dependable. His message is always true. You can always rely upon him. You can always entrust yourself to who he is and what he says. Because Jesus is who he claimed to be, his sayings are true. He is always faithful and dependable, and we can rely upon him. So he is holy and he is the true one. And he goes on to say he is the one building on this idea of, of uh, excuse me, building on this idea of, of him being the true Messiah. He then says that he has the keys of David. This is the third attribute, or excuse me, the key of David. It is a singular noun. He has the key of David. Now the key of David is a metaphor. 
What is the significance of a key? A key is that which enables you to unlock that which is locked. It is that which unlocks a door so that you can have access to what is on the other side of the door. The one who holds the key controls access. And Jesus is the one who holds the key, and therefore he is the one who controls access to the Davidic kingdom. It is called the key of David because it is he is bringing into the forefront of our consciousness here the Davidic covenant. Now, we ought to ask the question, why is he mentioning the key of David? Uh, <clears throat> if we look at what has been said so far in terms of his attributes, this is the uh, this is the only letter that mentions a series of attributes for the speaker that don't go back, or a series of attributes that don't go back to the vision of Jesus Christ in the uh, first chapter, where John saw this vision of the resurrected Jesus with a robe that went down to his feet, girded about with a belt of gold and his head was white like wool and his legs like burnished bronze and he lists all of these attributes and none of those are uh, mentioned here in Revelation chapter 3 however in Revelation chapter chapter 1 uh, verse 19 it does mention that he has the key of Hades and of death so he it, it emphasizes his ultimate authority that he is the one who is the, the determiner of who has access to the kingdom. This is a quote from Isaiah 22:22, 22, which says, "The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. This is a messianic prophecy. The key of the house of David I will lay on his shoulder. And then we see the second half of Isaiah 22:22 is also uh, picked up in uh, Revelation 1. Seven, and that is the thought. And he, so he shall open, and no one shall shut. And he shall shut, and no one shall open. Ultimate authority on who enters heaven, and who uh, does not, resides in the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he said in Matthew twenty-eight eighteen. Jesus spoke to them, saying, "All authority has been given to me in heaven and earth." This authority is the authority that is given to him after he has died on the cross for our sins, after he has been raised from the dead, indicating that this authority now resides in him. John 5.22, he says that this authority relates to judgment, and this judgment has now been delegated to him from the Father. It is not the Father who judges, but it is the Son who judges by virtue of the fact that in his hypostatic union, he has gone through everything that we've gone through. As the writer of Hebrews says, he has been tested in all points as we are, yet without sin. So he is our peer judge, and we're not going to be able to pull the wool over his eyes uh, at the judgment seat of Christ because he will have gone through everything that we've gone through. So we're not going to be able to uh, uh, say, well, you know, it, it was pretty tough having a sin nature, and it was pretty tough being in a fallen world, and we just can't do that. And Jesus is going to say, look, I went through every test just like you, and I handled it by using the Spirit of God and the Word of God, and you had the same assets, so don't try to rationalize or justify your failures before me. John 5.22, Jesus said, For the Father judges no one, 
but has committed all judgment to the Son. And this is the uh, Greek word krisis, where we get our word crisis. It's the Greek word krisis for judgment. John 5.27, he says, And the Father has given him authority to execute judgment also, because he is the Son of Man. And the Son of Man is that prophetic term that Daniel used in Daniel 7, and it speaks of the Son of Man who comes at a certain point yet future to establish his kingdom, to destroy the kingdoms of man, and to establish the kingdom of the Son of Man. Of course, the basis for entry into the kingdom is not based on some whim of Jesus Christ, but is based on our uh, attitude toward him, whether or not we have put our faith in Jesus Christ for salvation. John 3.18 says, He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So it's the emphasis in Scripture is that Jesus Christ holds the key because he is the one who paid the penalty for our sins, and the only way to enter is by faith alone in Jesus Christ alone. It is only because we possess the perfect righteousness of God that we are allowed to enter into heaven. We must trust in Christ. See, this is that claim of exclusivity that's reinforced in Revelation that it is only through Jesus that there is access to the kingdom. Jesus said in John 14:6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. In John 11:25, he reiterates that same idea and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. Now, I want you to notice a couple of things in those, those two verses I just quoted. Let me skip ahead here, get the slide up here. John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. What is he saying at the beginning? I am. Greek is ego, a me. And when that phrase was used, if you were a Jew listening to that, you would hear a little subtext going on that there was an implicit claim to deity because the proper name of God from the Old Testament was Yahweh, based on four letters, Y-H-W-H, the sacred tetragrammaton that came from, that was derived from a root verb in Hebrew, Hayah, meaning to be. And so that name was understood to be I am, that I am. So whenever you uh, someone used that phrase I am, it, it resonated with a claim to deity. And the Jews understood that when Jesus used that particular phrase. And a couple of times they looked for stones immediately to stone him because they knew he was claiming by the very use of this uh, phrase, ego me, that he was claiming to be fully God. They didn't have to wait for the Emperor Constantine to uh, uh, inf- you know, put this on the church according to the Da Vinci Code, but that this was the way it was from the very inception Jesus claimed uh, to be God. He uses the same phrase in John 11:25. It was this claim to deity that is what so enraged and angered the Jews. Now, if you're still in Revelation chapter three, I want you to just skip down to verse nine. I'm going to show you why why we need to take a little uh, rabbit trail here to talk about Judaism. In verse nine, there's a statement 
that Jesus is aware of the persecution that this, these believers are going through in their uh, locale. He says, Indeed, I will make those of the synagogue of Satan who say they are Jews and are not, but lie. Indeed, I will make them come and worship before your feet and to know that I have loved you. There is a reference here to the fact that the believers in Philadelphia were under persecution and attack from the Jewish community within Philadelphia. And Jews, by the late first century, hated Christians and did everything they could to promote persecution of Christians. Now, why was that? Because they deemed Christianity a threat to Judaism. And by this time, in 95 AD, uh, 25 years after the fall of Jerusalem, there was indeed a, 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 an insecurity among Jews because Rome had uh, overrun uh, Judea, it had destroyed Jerusalem, had destroyed the temple, and so they understood that they were under a threat. And it was about this same time that a council of uh, rabbis met at a village in Judea called Yamnia. And it was there that they solidified a lot of the teachings of the uh, rabbis. It was there that they uh, reaffirmed the canon of the Old Testament, and that's what it's usually known for. But they also solidified the, the teachings, all of the uh, legalisms of the Pharisees. And the foundation for their hostility to to Jesus and to Christians was they perceived them to be polytheists and to teaching multiple gods. And if we go back to the, we got to take a little sidetrack here in Jewish history to understand the significance here. At the, in the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments state, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. This is in Exodus 20, verses 3 and 4. The Jews had a continuous problem with these two commandments. Down through their history, they were constantly uh, tempted to go into idolatry, into polytheism, that is, the worship of many gods. And their continuous rejection of the one true God who was revealed to them on Mount Sinai and who gave them the Mosaic Covenant, their continuous rejection and idolatry led eventually to the fifth stage of divine discipline as outlined in uh, Leviticus chapter 26 and Deuteronomy chapter 28. And so in 722 B.C., the northern kingdom was defeated by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. They were transported and, and uh, resettled in various parts of the Assyrian Empire. And then the southern kingdom, Judah, was overrun by the Babylonians under Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C., now, after they returned from the exile, what was known as the Babylonian exile, approximately five, between 536 B.C. and 516 B.C. under Ezra, there began to develop a school of rabbinical thought that, that was focused on protecting the nation from ever falling into this kind of a polytheistic, idolatrous, idolatrous trap again. 
And they had the original 613 commandments of the Mosaic Law. There weren't 10. There were 613. And they said, you know, if we break any of these, God's going to whack us again like he did before. So we have to make sure that we don't break any of these 613 commandments. Now, how are we going to do that? Well, let's, let's build a fence around this so, so that we can have a number of, of other commandments that will keep us from even getting close to breaking one of those 613 commandments. So they generated a, a whole host of thousands of other regulations that they built around the Mosaic Law like a fence. And the idea was that if you didn't break through, if you accidentally broke through this fence, then you still wouldn't break any of the uh, 613 commandments, so you were okay. And those other commandments the, was known as the oral law, and the, they taught that this oral law was beyond the written law that was given to Moses at Sinai, and it was passed down through Joshua and the judges and the prophets and all the way down to the, to the Pharisees. And this eventually became written down around 200, around A.D. 200, and became known as the Mishnah. Well, they weren't really satisfied that, that the Mishnah would protect those 613 commandments from being broken, so they had to build a second fence. And that second fence is known as the Talmud. And that's another set of, of regulations. So if, you, if, you, uh, if you're, you're outside at the second fence level, if you actually break one of those regulations, then you still have another fence to go through before you'll break one of the commandments, uh, one of the original 613 commandments. And so that was the foundation for what, is, what we'll call rabbinic Judaism. Rabbinic Judaism, not biblical Judaism that's contained in the Old Testament, but rabbinic Judaism. And at the very core of this was a, a rigid, solitary, or unitarian monotheism. A rigid, solitary, or uh, unitarian uh, monotheism. And this is in radical distinction to what is really taught in the Old Testament. The Old Testament clearly taught from Genesis 1 1 on that the one God of Israel existed as a plurality. You know, Christians just always ask these questions about why is the Trinity important. The Trinity is important and foundational to the, all of God's plan and working for salvation. If you don't believe that Jesus Christ is fully God, there is no salvation. And if you don't believe in a plurality of the Godhead, you can't have a Savior who's fully God who can die on the cross for your sins. And so one of the major sticking points with Jews today, just as, just as it was in the first century, is that they didn't believe that there was a plurality in the Godhead. They had this idea of a solitary or Unitarian uh, monotheism. And so when Jesus came along and made statements such as in John 10.30, I and the Father are one, or in John 8.58, most assuredly I say to you before Abraham was... I am. When they heard that, what did they do? They started looking for stones to stone Jesus because they clearly understood he was claiming to be God, but their presupposition was that there was only one God, this Unitarian monotheism. Jews today firmly reject that you can find any kind of plurality in the Old Testament. For example, uh, one writer, Rabbi Stanley Greenberg of Temple Sinai in Philadelphia writes, The Hebrew Bible affirms the one God with unmistakable clarity. Monotheism, an uncompromising belief in one God, is the hallmark of the Hebrew Bible. The unwavering affirmation of Judaism and the unshakable uh, faith of the Jew. 
he goes on to say, under no circumstances can a concept of plurality of the Godhead or a trinity of the Godhead ever be based on the Hebrew Bible. Now, let's hear what the Hebrew Bible says. First of all, we're introduced to God in Genesis 1.1 as Elohim. That's a plural noun in Hebrew, that I am at the end. You also hear it in seraphim and cherubim, that I am is equivalent to the S we put on the end of a noun to make it plural. So in the beginning, God's created the heavens and the earth, but we don't translate it that way. We translate it as a singular. Now, there are a lot of Hebrew scholars that will get around this and say, oh, that's just a plural of majesty. But that is, ju- that, that is just a convention that grows out of a, a desire not to see plurality in the Old Testament because what you have is in, many, in, in passages where false gods or polytheistic gods are in view, you have the plural noun with a plural verb. That makes sense. You have to have subject-verb agreement, and so when you have a plural noun, you have to have a plural verb. But when the God of the Jews is in reference, and it is Elohim, the God of the Jews, frequently you have a singular verb with a plural noun, which does not make sense grammatically. So it's clearly emphasizing a plurality in the Godhead. Furthermore, when you have the phrase in Deuteronomy 6.4, this is a very famous verse in Judaism, it's called the Shema. Shema in Hebrew is the word for listening or hearing, and the first word in the verse is hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And this is a verse that every Jew knows, and they are taught that that means that the Lord is a singular uh, God, a Unitarian God, that there's no plurality there. But the Hebrew word that's translated one there is the Hebrew word echad, and echad has the idea of a plurality within a singularity. It is the same word that is used to describe what happens when a man and a woman come together in marriage, that the two shall become echad flesh, one flesh. See, there is multiplicity of personality in one unity. So that again and again and again you have examples in the, in the Old Testament of this word echad, meaning a, a oneness, a unity made up of, uh, of a multiplicity of things. But in the 11th century, one of the rabbis known as Rambam, Rabbi Moses ben Maimonides, one of the greatest rabbis in the Middle Ages. He was also, it's very fascinating, this would make a great doctoral dissertation for somebody. He was an Aristotelian scholar. And later on, Thomas Aquinas and many other Roman Catholic uh, scholars studied Maimonides. And so it's, they picked up a lot of ideas from him that I think really affected uh, Protestant theology down through the Middle Ages and into the Reformation. But Maimonides substituted the Hebrew word yachid for echad. Now, yachid means a singular unity. But you see what he's done is he's shifted the meaning of the original text. And that is the idea of the theology that came down through the century. See, there were two great ideas that developed in the uh, around the 10th, 11th century. You had uh, Rabbi David Kimke, and you had Rabbi uh, Maimonides Rambam, who came up with two different interpretations. Finally, it took him a thousand years to deal with these claims of Christianity. The first claim was that that um, 
God existed as a plurality, and you could have Father, Son, and Holy Spirit equally, equally God, and a triunity of God. And so Maimonides finally came up. Well, we just have to recognize that Deuteronomy six four should be Yahid, not Echad. And then Kimke came up with the idea that Isaiah fifty three, which I read earlier, that talked about substitutionary atonement. That, that Isaiah 53 didn't refer to the Messiah. See, you can go to a Jew in evangelism and you can, without giving them any scripture reference, just have them read the verbiage of Isaiah 53. And uh, uh, the Jewish evangelists I've talked to have often said this, that if they read that and you ask them where, who that's talking about or what that's about, they'll say, oh, that refers to that, the, the Christian God, Jesus, and how they, what they believe about him dying on the cross because in Jewish thought today since the about the 11th to 12th century AD thanks to Kimke they have interpreted Isaiah 53 as referring to the nation Israel and uh, up until then they understood even at the time of Jesus they understood that Isaiah 53 was talking about the servant who would come and die the Messiah the Mashiach who would come and die for the sins of Israel. Well, this was the major sticking point in the Old Testament. What, I mean, at the time of the Pharisees, is that they didn't want to believe in a plurality of of the Godhead. Let me give you two references from Isaiah. Isaiah 50 verses 1 through 6. Now, I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but it begins in Isaiah 50 verse 1, saying, "Thus says the Lord." So He's speaking. The capitals there indicate it's Yahweh. Okay, this is Yahweh, the God of Israel. And then in verse 4, and he's still speaking. Yahweh is still speaking in verse 4. Yahweh says, The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned. How many personalities are we talking about here? The Lord God said... I mean, the Lord said in verse 1, the Lord God has given me. See, you have the Lord in verse 1 and the Lord God in verse 4. Two different personalities, a plurality in, in the Godhead. Verse 5, the Lord God has opened my ear and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. Verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. Who do you think that refers to? That refers to the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. So you clearly have a reference in Isaiah 50, uh, the fact that the Messiah who is going to go through this suffering is a a distinct divine person. Another verse that indicates this is in Isaiah 48, verse 12 through 16. Listen to me, O Jacob and Israel. My called, I am He. Whoa, where do you? What, what's, what are we seeing here? I am He. I am the first. I am also the last. You see this verbiage, I am. It's a clear reference to God. This is the same uh, verbiage that Jesus Christ is using in uh, in many of the uh, passages we've referred to already. He says in verse 13, Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand has stretched out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand up together. And then verse 16, Come near to me, hear this. This is the one who's speaking. Come near to me and hear this. I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. I was there. And now the Lord God, a separate personage, and his spirit 
has sent me. So in verses 12 through 16, it's the one who is speaking is the one who is sent. The one who is sent is the Messiah. The one who is sent is the one who, according to this passage, is the first and the last. Where do we see that? Again and again in the book of Revelation. Indeed, it is the one sent who laid the foundation of the earth. That's Colossians 1, 16 and 17, that it's Jesus Christ who laid the foundation of the earth. And so we have three personages mentioned in these verses, a clear indication of plurality of the Godhead. Well, we'll look at some other things next week, but what we see right off the bat is one of the main reasons these believers in Philadelphia are under oppression and persecution from the Jews is because they believe that Jesus was God, not just uh, somebody who claimed derivative deity, not just a man who had great things to say, but that he was God. The early church clearly understood the full deity of the Lord Jesus Christ. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to come together this morning uh, to study, to worship you through learning your word and through song. Father, we thank you that we have a, a great salvation due to the work of a great Savior. A Savior who was promised from the Old Testament down through all the books in the Old Testament looking forward to his coming in the fullness of time. Father, we pray that if there's anyone that's here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that sure and certain, recognizing that Jesus Christ died on the cross for their sins and believing that he is the only way to have eternal life. If you're here this morning and you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this is your opportunity to do so. At the instant that you believe in Jesus Christ, God the Father knows what you are trusting in. He imputes to you perfect righteousness and declares you justified, and you have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would encourage our faith, strengthen us with what we have learned this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.